Our next speaker, um, Christopher Hodkinson, um, is an expert on music, um, liturgical music. Um, and one might ask, well, what, what, what's that got to do with, with uh, evangelization? Um, I like to think that Mozart knew uh, a bit about music. And it's interesting to note that uh, when the Queen of the Night in the, uh, in the Magic Flute was arming the young prince to combat the forces of rationalism and the Enlightenment, she, the weapons that she gave him was, well, the weapon was music. And he, he went out there, and this music which could tame wild beasts and melt the hardened hearts of men. Um, and that's, that's, as I say, Mozart knew a thing or two about music. Um, but possibly not as much as, uh, as Chris Hodkinson knows. <laughs> so we're extremely grateful to Chris to come all the way down from um, the, the even wetter and windier uh, plains, uh, fens indeed, of Cambridgeshire, um, to speak to us today. Um, Chris is, um, is part of, a leading part of, the Scolo Gregoriana of Cambridge, um, founded by the uh, legendary Dr. Mary Berry. Um, and the Scolo Gregoriana is a is, um, unique organization in this country in promoting the chant, um, making things happen, making chant training um, and chant accompanying uh, the mass and so on. Um, but um, part of that is, is actually scholarship. It's actually thinking about um, the, the medieval tradition, um, how it worked, uh, how best to understand the ancient chants, and, and so on. Um, and I think that's, that's, that's essential because it means it's part of, it's also part of a kind of a flowering of, of academic and intellectual, historical, um, and serious artistic interest, not just uh, you know, people seeing it at the back of the church, although it's that as well. So it's, it's, um, it's a remarkable uh, coalition of the practical um, and, and the theoretical. Anyway, um, everything else, I'll leave, I'll leave Chris to, to tell you himself. Thank you very much. It's a great honour to, to speak to you today. Thank you. Um, well, I should skip the introduction because, because um, Joseph has done it so well. Um, I'm going to speak today about liturgy, culture, and evangelization. And I shall um, not say too much about music um, because there's nothing harder than talking about music. Um, it's best to do it. Um, in the first part of my talk, I'm going to outline the relationship between liturgy and culture and consider how that relationship can be of service to the wider project of evangelization. And then, because time is short, I'll focus on the idea of liturgical culture, considered more narrowly as the culture of society, which is the church and its acts of worship, particularly Holy Mass, and exploring ideas about the way that we as individuals can participate in that society. Of course, as a, as a musician, um, I'm extremely interested in the way in which we we actually experience worship. Um, it's um, not just the aesthetics, so that's certainly important, but also um, the practicalities, the, the, um, the, um, the, the, the question of what we do with ourselves. 
Um, I'm not going to deal with abstract proposals, but instead look at some examples from history, most especially of history of this country in the period prior to the Reformation. This is a period that can be of great inspiration to us because, as our ancestors found, in fact, at the time of Catholic emancipation in the 19th century, it's the most recent time when the laws, the customs, the culture of this country can be said to have existed in harmony with the liturgy of the Church. It provides us um, with some models and, and some ideas that, that may be of use to us now. Now, the previous speakers have, between them, already made very clear um, how relevant liturgy is to the subject of evangelization. I'll only say a few words. If, as the Second Vatican Council taught, the liturgy is the summit toward which the activity of the Church is directed, and at the same time, the font from which all her power flows. It follows that the liturgy is an essential precondition for evangelization, and also that the ultimate aim of evangelization is liturgical. So the Gospel is announced so that people may be washed of their sins in baptism and welcomed into the communion of the Church. But because the liturgy is the privileged place in the Church, for the formal proclamation of the gospel, it is also the starting point for all evangelization. Now, it's possible in our age of instinctive rationalism to understand the liturgy's role in evangelization in a purely didactic sense, but I think that's a mistake. A really unfashionable synonym for sacred liturgy is divine cult. And this word, cult, should alert us to the intimate relationship that exists between liturgy and culture. Indeed, these spheres overlap to some extent, and they can influence one another. The buzzword in this context, we all know, is inculturation. And in practice, it usually means adapting the liturgy so that it conforms to the expectations of the surrounding culture and gives expression to the things that that culture deems important. Inculturation is nothing new. So, for example... The liturgy has adapted over the centuries to take account of things like the plague or disputes over Eucharistic doctrine. But the extent to which enculturation should be pursued has become very controversial. Today, arguments in favour of enculturation typically stress that it makes the liturgy more readily understandable and makes the church relevant. On the other hand, making the church conform to people's unthinking assumptions is not a good way them to think deeply about the gospel. As Pope St. John Paul II once said, liturgy, though it must always be properly enculturated, must also be countercultural. This is to say that the influence should also work in the other direction. The liturgy should lead us to transform the wider culture. Ways of thinking and acting learned in church should inform the lives of Christians so that ultimately the whole function of society can be reorientated towards the gospel. Of course, after hearing Professor Pink's um, talk earlier today, you'll have no illusions about how many obstacles stand in the way of that. But nevertheless, I think we should consider how the relationship between liturgy and culture might be improved in our society, unless the most prominent expression of a church's life interacts effectively with a wider culture. The church itself will surely have a very unhappy relationship with that culture. One important part of the evangelization, or perhaps I should say the re-evangelization of our culture, is the revival of, or creation, in fact, of customs 
to celebrate the feasts of a church year. Our culture already celebrates Christmas quite excessively. It celebrates Easter a bit less than the occasion merits. And sadly, it's largely forgotten the traditions associated with most other great feasts of the year. Those of us with families should be especially diligent in celebrating the feasts that matter to us. And we should do this at the dinner table as well as at church. Food is a defining feature of culture. For this reason, our bishops are to be congratulated on the successful reintroduction of the discipline of abstinence on Fridays. And we should probably now move on to consider a revival of a traditional practice of fasting during Lent and on certain other days, and also the restoration of a genuine fast prior to reception of Holy Communion, both, of course, for the reasons that Bishop Schneider has already pointed out to us, but, but as well as ensuring a, a proper spiritual disposition in those who receive the sacrament, it would also have a very good side effect because at the moment, failure to present oneself to communion at every Mass is tantamount to a public admission of mortal sin. That's it's not ideal. Um, so, ideally, the liturgy should be changing the wider culture rather than the other way round. But I think we have to also acknowledge that in some areas, the liturgy does itself need to change to adapt itself better to our culture. I'll give just one example. Um, The 14th of February in the modern calendar is, as I'm sure you know, the feast of Saints Cyril and Methodius. Um, These are are very great saints. But of course, everyone in this country knows that this day is the feast of St. Valentine, and our society has a set of customs to celebrate the fact. There's absolutely nothing the Church can do to abolish these customs, and no reason why it should. The customs are going to continue, and so the Church must choose between being an irrelevant observer of society or getting with the programme and celebrating the feast. And I should note that the 1962 books also need reform here, because a commemoration of St. Valentine at Low Mass is really not quite sufficient. The principle of enculturation requires us to observe the feast in a way that's commensurate with the significance of the feast for our culture. I'm going to resist the temptation to pursue the subject of liturgical reform, that's why I'm turning two pages. Reforms are easy to propose, but they all too often end in tears. Certainly we must worship God properly, but if we do not allow his worship to form us in his image, our work is in vain. Our culture is not going to be transformed by the liturgy itself, but by its participants, and so it's on their growth in holiness formed in the liturgy, which I wish to focus now. Tom Alcuin Reed, in The Organic Development of a Liturgy, a study of the 20th century liturgical movement, demonstrates a remarkable change in the activities of that movement over time. Originally, its focus was upon deeper understanding of the existing liturgy. We may say that its premise was that there were spiritual benefits to be gained if lay people could be persuaded to put aside their existing devotional practices in favour of increased attention to the actual texts and actions of the liturgy. As an aside, I I should say that, um, speaking as a scholar, I've never seen the truth of that proposition demonstrated, but it certainly seems plausible. Writers such as Prosper Guéranger, the re-founder of the Abbey of Salem, wrote introductions to the liturgy, but showed how it could become the basis of lay spirituality and thus an essential part of lay culture. Increasingly, lay people were encouraged not only to watch and listen, but to take part more actively. Pope St. Pius X, for instance, wished to be to learn to sing plain chant together with the choir. 
the laity were also encouraged to follow the liturgy and translation with the help of their hand missiles and to make responses to the servers. But gradually, the proponents of the liturgical movement came to the conclusion that even these things were not enough to achieve their objectives. In order to make people actively participate in the liturgy, they also needed to change the liturgy itself. And so, they introduced liturgy in the vernacular, usually with microphones so that each and every word could be understood. Um, they introduced music that tried to appeal to people and encourage them to sing. And they had the priest turn around so that everyone could see what he was doing. Of course, these changes did some aesthetic damage. And the liturgy, as it had developed over the course of many centuries, wasn't designed with this kind of thing in mind. And so it immediately became obvious that a complete overhaul of the texts and ceremonies was also necessary. So ironically, a movement that had started out with the intention of engaging the liturgy with the rites of the church ended up changing those rites beyond the recognition of most of the laity. Yet to the reformers, this change in the methods of the liturgical movement seemed justifiable because the aim remained the same, a reform of the liturgical culture of the Catholic laity. The experience of a liturgical movement therefore seems to pose us with a dilemma. On the one hand, most of those today who love the church's traditional liturgy have been deeply influenced by that movement. If they read the liturgical texts in their hand missiles, join in singing the ordinary chants, or think about the meanings of liturgical actions, they are putting the programme of the liturgical movement into practice. But on the other hand, if one embraces the liturgical movement in this respect, why not prefer modern rite, which was, after all, specifically designed to optimise the kind of lay participation which they were promoting? I think, however, that it's possible to accept some of the liturgical movement's positive features without following it all the way to its eventual conclusions. One of the problems of the liturgical movement was that its members increasingly came to favour the liturgy of a patristic period over all the others. While they took a genuine scholarly interest in it, their interpretations sometimes went beyond the sources, and the vision of the pristine early liturgy, in which the laity participated consciously and actively, might today seem a little fanciful. But worse, they could be inclined to heap criticism upon medieval and early modern liturgical cultures, to the extent that some of their accounts seem to exclude the possibility that for about a millennium, any of the lay faithful truly participated in the liturgy. In making this critique, I think I'm in good company, because this characteristic of the liturgical movement was strongly rejected by Pope Pius XII in his encyclical Mediator Dei. The Pope condemned those who wanted to go back to the rites and usage of antiquity, noting that the newer rites, and here I think we have to understand him as also referring to features of a traditional liturgy that liturgists were inclined to dismiss as medieval accretions, these newer rites were also worthy of respect since they were introduced under divine providence to meet new circumstances. He took a more balanced position when considering the liturgical movement's programme for lay participation. He praised efforts to make the faithful more familiar with the missal and gave support to increased outward participation, but also issued a warning which is so important that I shall read it in full. Many of the faithful are unable to use the Roman missal, even though it is written in the vernacular, 
nor are all capable of understanding correctly the liturgical rites and formulas. So varied and diverse are men's talents and characters that it is impossible for all to be moved and attracted to the same extent by community prayers, hymns and liturgical services. Moreover, the needs and inclinations of all are not the same, nor are they always constant in the same individual. Who then would say, on account of such a prejudice, that all these Christians cannot participate in the Mass nor share its fruits? On the contrary, they can adopt some other method which proves easier for certain people. For instance, they can lovingly meditate on the mysteries of Jesus Christ, or perform other exercises of piety, or recite prayers which, though they differ from the sacred rites, are still in essential harmony with them. The Pope's warning hasn't been widely heeded. Indeed, even today, one can come across people who actually appear to take pleasure in scoffing at old ladies who say the rosary during Mass. I have to say this attitude towards the devotion of the faithful is truly deplorable. It's... it's you know, it's, it's, it's a truly disgusting thing. Um, who, who, who are they? Who is anyone to think that by, by observing outward forms of prayer, they can read souls and say who is and who is not truly participating in the sacrifice of the Mass? Now, in saying this, I don't want to do down the scholarship of the liturgical movement. Quite the opposite. The problem in the middle of the 20th century was too much success. Research was progressing very fast and there had not yet been time for the new scholarly ideas to be thoroughly critiqued and refined. So I think it's fair to say that the liturgical reforms we got were very much a product of a particular period of intellectual ferment. If the Roman liturgy had been reformed a generation earlier or a generation later, the result would have been different in many ways. The liturgical movement of the 1950s and 60s can also be seen as a product of a culture of its time. European societies enjoyed considerable social cohesion, partly as a result of the unifying imperatives of war, and in the subsequent peace, this was expressed in the formation of welfare states. Considerable increases in prosperity encouraged optimistic belief in future progress. So the 1960s were uniquely favourable not only to the cause of updating the liturgy, but also to the creation of a liturgical culture that was extremely egalitarian. The first comprehensive schools in England opened in 1965, exactly the same year that the post-conciliar reforms began in earnest. Universal comprehensive education seemed set to demolish the class system, creating a more equal society in which everyone would be well-educated, highly literate, and ready to participate in the liturgy in a uniform way according to the preferences of the liturgical movement. In this happy environment, there was much talk of a new springtime. Just as Newman had predicted a second spring in 1852, as, as we heard earlier, so now also there seemed every reason to expect a period of growth and fruitful, fruitful evangelisation. Today, of course, we can see that things have worked out a little differently. The classicism is still with us, and our modern liturgical culture seems more reflective of middle-class domesticity than of the diverse and rather less cohesive society in which we now live. This should prompt us to think about how we might adapt to this changed situation. This question 
also concerns communities that celebrate the traditional Mass. Because of the liturgical culture of the laity, the manner in which they enter into the action of the Mass is not at all the same thing as the rite which is celebrated at the altar. I need to make a distinction at this point. As you all know, and as Bishop Schneider has made very clear, the highest possible form of participation in the Mass is the reception of Holy Communion by those who are disposed to receive the grace of the sacrament. But since that subject has been thoroughly treated today, I intend to concentrate entirely upon other forms of liturgical participation. These are associated with their own graces, which the Church considers to be very important. Indeed, the precepts of the Church require Catholics to hear Mass every Sunday in feast obligation under pain of mortal sin, but they only oblige us to receive communion once a year. Those of you who are singers will know that the chants of the Mass are not equally distributed throughout the rite. Instead, there's a great deal of singing during the first half of the Mass, it's quite hard work, while the second half of the Mass is characterised by silence. I'm going to comment very briefly on the first part, in which the most natural role of the laity is to listen to the chants and readings, before going on to consider the silent parts of the Mass in more detail. The liturgy is the primary place in the Church for the proclamation of the Gospel, and the ceremonies which surround this proclamation serve to reveal its meaning within the life of the Church. Indeed, even the canon of Scripture was originally established through liturgical praxis and only later defined through conciliar teaching. Today it's customary for the faithful to follow the readings, often in translation. The traditional rite does not include as much scripture as certain other lectionaries, but its re readings are very carefully selected for their suitability. In particular, perhaps the most striking characteristic of them is the ending. The last sentence is usually extremely carefully chosen. It's intended to remain ringing in our ears long after we hear it. But what's often forgotten is that the, the chants that surround the reading of the Gospel are also an essential part of the liturgy. Um, they also contain a substantial portion of the scriptural content of the Mass. I'm going to save for another day a full explanation of the highly sophisticated contribution that the Gregorian chant makes to their expression, but instead focus on the important role they play in the Mass. Their literal meaning also merits careful attention. But I'd like to comment on the other dimension of their meaning. The great 13th century liturgist Durandus began his vast commentary on the liturgy with a statement that would have been a commonplace to inform readers. He said, Whatever belongs to the liturgical offices is full of signs of divine and sacred mysteries. Whatever belongs. So, so in fact, he means absolutely everything. Um, we can therefore consider this in relation, for instance, to the chants that precede the Gospel. The Alleluia is sung to a melody of a long melisma, that's a lot of notes, on its final syllable. And that syllable signifies the name of God. This melisma, which is called the, the noima, or jubilus, is an expression of joy. But it also signifies the ascent of our minds towards God and the insufficiency of human language and thus the human intellect, this experience. That's why many notes with few syllables. When immediately afterwards we hear the words of the Gospel, we experience the effect of the Incarnation, where God re reveals himself to us 
in a form accessible to human thought. So two, two kinds of, of, of prayer there. Now in, in Lent, the Alleluia is replaced with a tract. And two tracts stand out in particular. Qui Habitat, which is now sung on the first Sunday of Lent, and Deus Deus Meus, sung on Palm Sunday. They have texts from Psalm 90 and Psalm 21, respectively. And they're as long as many readings. I'm not going to sing them to you now because they take a good singer ten minutes and a choir could easily take a quarter of an hour. And because of their length, there's often some pressure to shorten them, either omitting verses or singing them to a simple psalm tone. And get such a utilitarian approach shows ignorance of their spiritual meanings. On the first Sunday of Lent, the tract signifies for 40 days that Jesus spent fasting in the wilderness, and immediately afterwards, the Gospel describes his temptation by the devil. On Palm Sunday, the reading is of the Passion, and the tract signifies the suffering and triumph of Christ on the cross. On both occasions, the extraordinary length of the chant is actually necessary for us to enter it fully into its spiritual dimension. Talk of the spiritual dimension of a liturgy is all too easily regarded as superstition these days, but in fact, it is an essential part of the liturgy. The Christian liturgy is full of things which are derived from pre-Christian Judaism. Examples would be the singing of psalms, or the sacrifice of bread and wine that was first offered by the high priest Melchizedek. These things were types and figures which, as we know, found their fulfilment and ending in Christ. Yet, as the Orthodox theologian Alexander Schmemann brilliantly explained, this does not make these things dispensable. On the contrary, their meaning, which before was veiled, has been made clear through the Incarnation. And so it's now essential that these types and figures be retained, because they have become signs that truly reveal what they signify, sacraments and sacramentals. Let me move on to consider the silences of the later part of the Mass. Why, in particular, is the canon of the Mass, of the mass read inaudibly? The International Federation Univoce recently published a position paper um, the, the, the lead author, as it were, is, is, is here. Um, <coughs> um, and this paper gave several reasons. But I'm not going to cover the same ground again, but instead look at the rather different explanations which were offered by our ancestors before the Reformation. Because this gives us an opportunity to see something of how the faith was lived when England was a Catholic country, at a time when its culture had been shaped for many centuries by the Roman liturgy. Now, of course, you're free to disagree with the particular ideas I'm about to discuss. In fact, I don't find all of them very persuasive myself. But let me give you a spiritual health warning. If you say that the recitation of the canon in a low voice is itself to be condemned, you will find yourself on the wrong side of the Council of Trent. That's session 22, canon 9, if you need to look it up. Um, <coughs> so here we go. William Lindwood was England's most distinguished canon lawyer of the 15th century. He ended his impressive career as Bishop of St. David's. And he gave no less than six reasons for the silent canon in his Provinciale, a commentary on English canon law that was so definitive that it was still being reprinted two and a half centuries later. Lindwood's six reasons are not his own invention, however. He was in fact stating the consensus of an established canonical tradition. 
His primary source was the famous 14th century canonist, John of Acton, who, like Lindwood, had studied at Cambridge. But John himself was drawing upon earlier authoritative sources. Three of the reasons, for instance, derived from a commentary on the Mass, written by one of St. Peter's most learned and illustrious successors, Pope Innocent III. Lindwood's first reason of the silent canon is that God listens to the cry of the heart, not to the cry of the voice. In other words, since prayer is essentially a spiritual action, it is not necessary to do it in a loud voice. Indeed, our Lord himself instructed his disciples to pray not like hypocrites, who wish to be seen by men, nor like pagans, who think that their loquacity will make them heard, but to pray to the Father in secret, and the Father who sees secret things will grant his reward. Lindwood's second reason is more practical. Proclaiming the canon aloud could be too tiring for the priest. We have to remember that in the Middle Ages, the only conceivable alternative to saying the canon in a low voice was to sing it. Indeed, Pope Innocent III was aware that several centuries previously it had been the custom to do just that. Two more reasons concern the reverence due to the words of a Roman canon. First, there was the risk that the canon would come to be held in less respect if it were heard daily. Second, there was the risk, probably greater than than now, that the words of a canon would be learned by the laity, who would then chant it in the streets or other inappropriate places. In fact, Innocent tells, tells a, um, a rather compelling story of some shepherds uh, many, many centuries earlier who learned the canon and chanted it in the fields and were probably struck down by, by lightning. Um, <laughs> um, um, which uh, is clearly divine intervention. Um, however, the two reasons that Lindwood gives that I think are most interesting concern the respective liturgical roles of the priest and the laity, and we'll consider them together. Lindwood says first that the words of a canon pertain only to the priest, and second, that the priest says the canon quietly, lest his words should prevent the people from praying. Now this last point is so foreign to our modern prejudices that um, a less educated audience would have burst into laughter when I mentioned that. I've, I've often experienced that. Um, but in fact, if you've ever tried to count your beads during Mass in the Rite of Paul VI, now I'll confess I've done so once or twice, you will know how easy it is to be distracted by the constant flow of words and to lose your place in the prayers. So there are really only two options during the canon. One can either pay close attention to the prayer of a priest or one can let one's mind wander, hopefully upon sacred things, but um, who can say? Um, so we might ask ourselves then, should the people be trying to say their own prayers, as Lindwood suggests, while the priest prays the canon? That depends, of course, upon whether it's correct that the canon pertains specifically to the priest. We might suppose not. After all, the canon is written in the first person plural, indicating that the priest is praying on behalf of the whole church. And even when it is spoken quietly, the people still give their assent to the prayer at the end. Nevertheless, there is something to be said for Lindwood's position. Listening to a prayer is not the same thing as praying. And since the laity cannot offer their sacrifice of the Mass in the same manner in which a priest does, there must be some question about whether it is appropriate for them to pray the same prayer as a priest. 
The priest's offering is certainly offered on behalf of the people. And in that sense, it's their offering. But if the people say exactly the same prayer as the priest, then there's at the very least a degree of redundancy. Let's consider, for example, the opening words of the canon. To you, therefore, most merciful Father, for Jesus Christ, thy Son, our Lord, we make suffering request and ask that thou may consider acceptable and bless these gifts, these offerings, these holy and unblemished sacrifices. Now, any number of lay people may piously pray these words, which in the context of the canon clearly refer to the offerings of bread and wine. But the efficacy of the ritual is not dependent upon them, but on, upon the priest who celebrates the Mass. In any case, we must ask what it means to pray these words. The words of the Roman canon, though very ancient, are not quite as old as the Mass itself, but the action that they achieve is the offering of a sacrifice of a new covenant. Even what scholastics identified as the words of consecration are only essential to the completion of this action, insofar as the Church defines them to be so. And we know this to be the case because of the Church's judgment in favour of the validity of the canon of Adai and Mari, which famously lacks an institution narrative. In fact, from a literary perspective, the words of institution are not so much the main content of a prayer expressed in the Roman canon as its stated premise, since they occur within a long subclause that begins with a phrase, who on the day before he was to suffer. So the point I'm making is that the words of the canon serve to make explicit the content of a priest's action and to prevent him from performing that action with any other intent than the intent of the church. But these words cannot simply be identified with his action. So if we understand prayer as a kind of spiritual act, we must say that the laity cannot fully pray the Roman canon because its underlying action, the thing that the prayer is meant to achieve, is something that they themselves cannot perform. Now, they could, of course, be witnesses to it, um, and although that would be a relatively passive act, um, the main problem is, in fact, that it's not compatible with the tradition of veiling sacred things, which is something, of course, that derives from the Jerusalem temple. We must remember that in antiquity, when it was common to sing the kind of canon, it was also normal to hide the altar behind a curtain, so what, what in later times is achieved by silence, in earlier times it was, it was achieved um, in the medium of sight. But putting that aside, um, the main objection I can see is that my critics will think that all these ideas are very clericalist because they tend to exclude the laity from the action of the mass. But I think this idea needs to be turned upon its head. Who is to say, after all, but it's necessary to the dignity of a lay state that Valetti should hear, see, or do everything that the priest does. Is it not the action of the priest, is, is not this action a ministerium, a service, which, if he has care of souls, is actually obliged to perform for Valetti's benefit? It's a basic principle of the liturgy, but each person should perform the role that pertains to him and no other. Pope St. Clement I, writing to the Corinthians at the end of the first century, put it this way, We ought to do, in an orderly fashion, everything that the Master commanded us to fulfil in the properly established times. To the High Priest belong particular liturgical services. The priests have their own place, and the Levites have their own ministries too. The layman is given orders appropriate for the laity. By the way, it's a great 
quote if you ever read bits from the kind of person who imagines the early church as this sort of happy-go-lucky place in which anything goes. Um, that letter soon puts, um, <coughs> put, puts people right in that impression. So we might then ask, what is the role of the letter of the canon of the Mass? What are they to do? The Catechism of the Catholic Church gives a helpful summary. In the Eucharist, the sacrifice of Christ becomes also the sacrifice of the members of his body. The lives of the faithful, their praise, sufferings, prayer and work are united with those of Christ and with his total offering and so acquire a new value. This union of the lives of the lay faithful with the Eucharistic offering of Christ is a proper liturgical expression of the priesthood of the laity and it puts into action the exhortation of St. Peter in his first epistle where having recalled that Christ is the cornerstone he says be you also built up as living stones a spiritual house a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ Pope St. Gregory of the Great spelled out what this means in practice. What right believing Christian can doubt that in the very hour of the sacrifice, at the words of a priest, the heavens are opened and choirs of angels are present in that mystery of Jesus Christ, that high things are accompanied with low and earthly joined to heavenly and that one thing is made of visible and invisible. But it's necessary that when we do these things, we should also by contrition of heart, sacrifice ourselves unto Almighty God. For when we celebrate the mystery of our Lord's Passion, we ought to imitate this same mystery. For it will truly be a sacrifice for us unto God if we offer ourselves also to him in sacrifice. How, we might ask, was this put into practice in medieval England, where the lay people did not simply follow the words of the canon mentally and unite themselves to the prayer of a priest? The liturgy at that time included a very substantial section in the vernacular on Sundays and feast days. This began with a bidding prayers, which was sometimes followed by a sermon and notices of forthcoming feast days. In cathedrals, all this typically took place during the procession preceding High Mass. But in parish churches, it was usually fitted into the Mass after the, offer after the offertory rites, that is, immediately before or after the secret prayer. The bidding prayer is often called the bidding of the beads because it consists of a long list of intentions for which the laity would bid to pray. Let me give you an example of such, such a prayer which was used in York at the start of the 15th century. It's a little bit different from the bidding prayers as we informally refer to them today. I'll update the language a bit for your benefit. You shall make your prayers especially to our Lord God Almighty and his blessed Mary Mother, blessed Mother Mary, and to all the holy court of heaven, for the state and stability of all holy church, for the Pope of Rome and all his cardinals, and for the Archbishop of York, and for all archbishops and bishops, and for all men and women of religion, and for the parson of this church, that is care of your souls, and for all priests and clerks who serve or serves in this church or in any other, and for all prelates and ordinaries, and all that govern and rule holy church, that God lend them grace to rule the people, and so on and so forth. Um, it's a very long list. The laity were then instructed to pray for the king and his government, the peers of the realm, 
the benefactors of a church, the farmers, the seafarers, good weather and good harvest, the pilgrims, those who repair roads and bridges, the fellow parishioners, the women in childbirth, the sick, sinners, debtors and prisoners. I should list even longer than that. Some Latin prayers then followed, and then parishioners were told in English to pray to Our Lady and to the patron saints of the diocese. Then after a Marian antiphon, another list followed of deceased people for whom the laity might need to pray. And all this was concluded with another Latin devotion, including the Psalm De Profundis. So all the English parts are not themselves prayers, they're instructions of things that you will pray for. So what this means is that just before the canon mass began, the laity were reminded of all the intentions that they might possibly need to bring before the Lord. And so they were encouraged during the canon to add their own prayers and petitions to those of the priest. In fact, one text, which is known as the Lay Folks Mass Book, gives us a really sophisticated example of how this might work in practice. The book consists of a set of prayers to recite during Mass, written in rhyme to aid the memories of illiterate people. It seems to be written originally in Norman French and translated into English in the 14th century. Now, during the canon of the Mass, the Lay Folks Mass book prescribes prayers which begin with thanksgiving, proceed to prayer for forgiveness of sins and emendation of life, and continue with a list of prayer intentions every bit as comprehensive as the bidding prayer I just read. Then, after devotional prayers to be said at the elevation, there follows another long prayer for the dead. What's really striking is that this whole series of prayers is closely modelled upon the Roman canon, most obviously in including prayers for the living in its first part, and prayers for the dead after the elevation. It differs from the Roman canon in omitting the language of sacrifice, that part which, according to Lindwood's rationale, pertains solely to the priest. What this omission makes possible for the laity is a much more personalised prayer, in which they're able to include many more specific intentions. And in fact, this agrees with a principle articulated by Pope Pius XII, that the liturgical devotions of a laity, though they might be different from the sacred rites, should be essentially in harmony with them. Indeed, there will be some lay people for whom this kind of prayer is especially helpful, who can achieve a deeper kind of participation in the Mass in this way. It's interesting to reflect that this kind of multi-layered prayer during the canon is actually very similar to what happens at other points in the Mass, in the traditional rite, that is. At several points, such as during the introit and Kyrie, at the offertory, and again at the reception of communion, the priest says certain prayers, and the ministers respond to some of them. These prayers are said in a low voice, and many of them are written in the first person singular, indicating that they have a priest's personal devotional prayers. Almost all of them are in fact medieval additions to the rite of mass. While the priest says these prayers, the choir is often singing, and so the prayers prevent him from joining the rest of the assembly in meditating upon the chants. But it wouldn't be right to say that these devotions distract him from his role. In fact, they represent his intense involvement in the liturgy. So we can see them as being the priestly equivalent of the people's private prayers. In both cases, everyone is united in the same mystery, but the manner in which each person participates is proper to his role. The fact that the traditional liturgy operates on multiple levels is increasingly being recognised as one of its great strengths, and not only by traditionalists. To quote, We are heirs to an enduring mystery 
but has inspired some of the greatest art, music, and devotional expressiveness of Western culture. And this mystery struggles to find expression in the content and the context of the more rationalised and pared-down rites and devotions of the post-conciliar church. That quote is from Professor Tina Beattie. The multi-layered nature of the traditional rite creates a sense of mystery because there's no single ideal way to experience the liturgy. For those who are new to it, this can be a bewildering experience. But as one becomes more enculturated, one increasingly appreciates the freedom of being able to move between different kinds of prayer according to one's mood or spiritual needs. In fact, this is a sign of its immense cultural sophistication. The Mass is a fundamentally unitive act, yet it does not require its participants to act uniformly. Instead, each one is invited to play an individual role. As a consequence, the most diverse people are able to participate in it. It has nurtured the spiritual lives of countless illiterate people through the ages. And yet time was when most of the kings of Europe attended the liturgy daily. Cultural sophistication in this case turns out to be the exact opposite of exclusivity. On the contrary, this form of liturgy is well suited to serve a new evangelization, precisely because, even in a very diverse society, it operates at enough levels to provide something of spiritual value to everyone. Thank you very much.